0: Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, our minds and our hearts can at times be in two different places. Uh, So I pray uh, that during our time here this morning that you will help us to worship and love you with all of our hearts and all of our minds and our soul and our strength, that these shall all come together together. I pray even for my own self this morning, that the distractions of the things of our lives in the world, that those things would fade, uh, so that we may see you even now more clearly, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our our culture at times uh, is not a fan of judgment, um, but then there are other times when it's very opportune to to bring up the idea of judgment, Um, you know, where you say, ah, They'll get what's coming to them. Uh where where we kind of look and 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 see some negative things that have happened, and we say, Ah, I can't wait for the shoe to drop on them. And, and uh, when we consider it through scripture, Hebrews chapter 9 does make it rather plain and on the face of it that judgment is coming. Um it says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that. Comes judgment. And, and during uh, this judgment, it's not wrong of us to think of a courtroom scene. And so you think of a judge, you think of a gavel coming down, you think of, um, you know, sentences being declared. It's, it's not entirely wrong to think of this. Some will be declared guilty, while others will be declared innocent. And, and justification is, is an interesting word because it is what is declared as the gavel comes down and someone is declared innocent it it comes down and we say they are justified it's an interesting word because it's a word that we don't use often outside of these legal realms john stott helps us understand the term where he says justification is a legal term borrowed from the law courts It is the exact opposite of condemnation to condemn is to declare somebody guilty, but to justify is to declare someone as righteous. So who then is it that the gavel comes down and it says free to go? Who is it that it says justified forgiven or this morning? Let me make this a little bit more personal for us here. Uh, When the gavel comes smacking down for you at the great throne judgment of God, what is said? What will be said? And why is it said? Here, this morning, it is interesting that Jesus brings two people into view who are both very different from each other. These people are, both these men are very different. And yet, on one hand, they're desiring the exact same thing. They both come to the temple to pray, wanting to be justified. And they seem to approach God through very, very different means. Further, we will see that though the expectation is, and we might think, well, God in his grace, God's a God of grace, that he would receive both of them and give grace to one and to the other. We will see here this morning that they both will receive very different pronouncements different sentences from each other. So this morning in a very straightforward manner, we'll first consider the Pharisee and then we'll consider the tax collector. So first, consider with me the Pharisee. I I hope you, as you heard, as I read earlier, how great this man is. Does Christ condemn this Pharisee for his works at all? No, not at all. His works were great, in the confines of this parable, at least in the confines of his prayer, his outward actions were commendable. He seems, from the standpoint of the passage, to be blameless. It's interesting because he he highlights some of the Ten Commandments here that he honors. But before we get to the ones that he's highlighting, notice what is subtle. Notice with me that. First, he must be honoring the first commandment to have no other gods before the God. Because this Pharisee knows that to go to the temple is to declare that Yahweh is the true God and that there are no other gods. By his mere presence there, he is making this known. And and, and notice, presumably, he's here on the Sabbath. So he's obeying not just the first commandment, but the fourth commandment. He, in his prayer, he's not cursing God. He's not using God's name in vain. He's not worshiping bowed or bowing down to some sort of carved image. Thereby he's fulfilling the second and the third commandments. And so traditionally what has been called the first table of the law, which is the first, second, and third and fourth commandments, which bring us to a place where we are loving and worshiping God. This Pharisee, seems to be perfectly falling into place with this um you you need to understand that the the ten commandments are oftentimes separated into the first table and the second table and although there is disagreements on how these things flesh out and i would argue at some level you can't really obey the second table which relates to loving our neighbors very well unless you and i are loving god properly so i understand there's disagreement but just if it's helpful the first table of the law seems to be fulfilled just in his mere presence there praying. And then he launches into making it very clear that the second table, as it pertains more directly to loving each other, he, he is blameless. We get the highlights from this man here as he says, look, I'm not an extortioner. In other words, this man will not rob people blindly. This man's not one who's going to set up a shop and, and, and sell snake oil. No, here he is honest in his dealings. He is upright. He is fair so that he has fulfilled the eighth commandment. You shall not steal further. He is not unjust. That word that we opened up with here about justice and being justified. He says, I'm not unjust. And in this context, he seems to be claiming in essence, I'm not a sinner. Uh, 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 another way to translate this might be that he would say, I'm not uh, unrighteous. He also makes it clear that he's sexually faithful. He's not breaking the seventh commandment to ensure that he is hit on all the other commandments. He just throws in the general position of the tax collector at this point. So in other words, almost categorically, he's just going through the 10 and just saying, God, I'm obeying perfectly all these 10 Because to throw the tax collector in there was basically to throw someone who was dubbed a sinner. Tax collectors, recall, much like the IRS, they have a lot of money. And they would spend it in nefarious and sinful ways. And so, if you want to make it clear that you're righteous, you just say, Well, I'm not like this sinner, this tax collector. So that in one brief prayer, just a couple lines... This Pharisee has made it clear that he keeps the law. He's an upright person. There's no fault with him. Friends, if this Pharisee walked into this church this morning and walked through these doors right here, I think we would welcome him. I think we would be glad that he is with us. We would say, here is a man that we can trust. We might even want to bestow honor on this man. This might be somebody we say, this is a guy we want to follow. Because outwardly he is is so honorable, let's make him an elder. This guy is worthy to be emulated. I've been helped tremendously by Martin Luther's comments on this passage. And and the way he puts it is rather sharp. Hear this where he says, here, you view all the commandments together. And he has appeared to the world as a paragon, great word, paragon of godliness. A fine, pious, God-fearing, and holy man who is to be applied as a mirror, an example for the whole world. That they might well desire, as it would be indeed well to desire. And the world would be very lovely if it had many such people as this Pharisee here. Oh, that our church, that Church on the Mountain would be filled with people who are truly faithful to their spouse, who are genuinely generous and who know that going to worship God in prayer are marks of a genuine believer, that all Christians would be known for being kind and fair to their employees and that all Christians would honor God with their relationships and that we, in the middle of our sexual revolution, that we would stand countercultural, that we would be equally generous with our talents and our times and our goods making sure that nobody here has a need that is not met, that we might be upright like this Pharisee. All right. The prayer has been prayed. And Jesus now looks at this prayer in comments. But before we see how Jesus considers this man, I just want to briefly recall to you what a Pharisee was. A A Pharisee was one who held strict observance of the law. Which in itself is not wrong. This is good. They would hold strict observance. In fact, the word Pharisee means a separatist. And that was likely a negative word that was put on them. And the reason this idea of being a Pharisee or a separatist was put there. Was because they viewed themselves because of their obedience to the law. As being above you. Above others. They were able to stand and say, ah, I've obeyed perfectly. And so that they had this idea of. the the name that they gave themselves, which is to be associated, the Habarim. They were ones who were associating with the law. They were known for being a people of the law, but they were also known for adding to the law. They trusted and relied upon their observance of the law. They were most influential of all the Jewish sects and their tone and posture had infected the people. And so now we hear, Jesus In his sentence, he hears the prayer of this Pharisee who's gone up to the temple and here's what he says that Pharisee was not justified in utter shock. This righteous man was not forgiven. The gavel comes down and this man remains in his guilt remains in his sin. The gavel swoops down and he is left unjustified. At at a surface level examination of this, it's kind of shocking. How is a man who lives so perfectly like this considered not forgiven, unrighteous, not just? But as, as soon as you begin to look beneath the surface, friends, it becomes crystal clear. You get it. He has no understanding of the phrase that we like to use, but for the grace of God, therefore go I. This man has no understanding of this. He doesn't understand Psalm 130, verse 3, where it says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? The answer? Nobody. Or Psalm 143, verse 2, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one alive is righteous in your sight. Here, though, he looks down on this tax collector. And as he looks down at this tax collector, he actually fails to look up. Friends, think about this. If this tax, if this Pharisee had only looked up and not just to the, the, the fake God that he's praying to, but the true real God. If he looked up, he would see the vast distance between he and God Almighty, Yahweh, who is holy and, un, and righteous unlike any other. This Pharisee, who looks down at the tax collector would realize there's only an inch of difference between the two of these men while there stands miles and miles and miles between this Pharisee and God himself. And yet he says here, I I am not like this man. There will always be friends, somebody who's more righteous than you. And if this tax collector had even, or this Pharisee had even looked around at all, he would have been able to, instead of to look at people who were less righteous than he, he could have looked around and found those who were more righteous than he. For in your life, in my life, there will always be a Mother Teresa. There will always be a Gandhi in our life who is sacrificed more than you have, who's given up more than you, who's done better, who's been more faithful, more kind for sure, and more loving than you have. Friends, it would be easier and better for us to do that. No, see, in truth here, this man does not look up far enough. And this man's righteous acts won't be able to save him. They cannot. Why? Titus chapter 3, verse 5 gives us the answer. It says, he, meaning Jesus, saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, there's our word, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Imagine for a moment <clears throat> you received a thank you card from someone. And in the thank you card, you, you open it up and it, and it says... Um, dear Susie, dear Johnny, um, I just want to thank you because I'm so great. I am so awesome and I am so amazing. Now that would be the weirdest thank you card that you would ever received. (laughs) Maybe some of you have written this card, (laughs) but here in this prayer, is that not what this Pharisee does? He says, thank you, followed by five striking times where he essentially says, thank you that I am awesome. Listen, verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you. Five times he's going to reference the, the I. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I Yet. Uh, Tim Simon sent out to us through the prayer chain this last week, a great encouragement for prayer. A- and the, the encouragement was, let us as Christians, as we pray and at, especially at the beginning of the year, let us begin with praise and thanks and adoration. Before you move into the myriad of ways that, Lord, we need help. Please help us. But begin with praise. Praise. And here, this Pharisee, he does begin with praise, but he is not really praising God at all. Who's he praising? He's praising himself. And Jesus is indicting words here are that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Here, God looks underneath the surface. He looks past my actions and the Lord sees, not as man sees, he looks at the outward appearance, or man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart for Samuel chapter 16. And church, I just, I hope that you and I, we catch the gravity of this for, I think this man's soul hangs in the balance here. He views righteousness as merely outward external actions. And he believes or functions in a way that says to achieve righteousness, all one needs to do is highlight all the ways that you obey or follow the law and all the ways that you're an upright person. As if God simply uses a teeter-totter. Where he says, as long as the side of you with the kid that has done the good stuff is heavier than the side that has the kid who's done some of the bad things, as long as you're weighed in that direction, you're fine. Then you're justified. But it completely, completely bypasses what God is truly after. The Lord is after our hearts. What should this Pharisee have done as he went up to pray this prayer? Have you thought this ha- he, he He really could have gone up there. And as he began to pray, God, I thank you. And then the moment he saw this tax collector there crying and beating his breast, you should have said, Lord, would you help me? I need to help this man. No, friends, he, 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 could have, he could have gotten down and stooped with them and said, my friend, let me pray with you. Let me help you right these wrongs. Let's go to God who is graceful. Let me help you out with your financial burdens. I know that you've spent recklessly. I know that you've lived foolishly. Let me walk with you as we walk towards Jesus. But no, this Pharisee, rather than doing that, he uses this tax collector like you might rest your foot up on a stool. This tax collector has only become useful to him to highlight how great he is, and rather than help up his brother in sin, as we are called to do, he stomps on his brother. In one sense, we might say that this Pharisee, while trying to declare that he keeps the law of God, he doesn't truly keep the law of God. In fact, he seems to rejoice over the fact that the tax collector doesn't keep the law of God. He's happy to use him in that way. And friends, being that this year for us will be a year that I'm encouraging our entire church to have an emphasis, have a focus, have a look at evangelism, where we want to declare, to make known what Jesus has done in our lives. That's what we're focusing on this year. And my prayer is for myself, because I sense it, and my prayer is for us, is that we would root out all traces of this Pharisee. Because if we bring people into this church and we proclaim the message of Jesus to them, and at the end of the day, all we're trying to do is get them to clean up their act so that they too can look down on others. We will only be replicating the vicious cycle of this Pharisee. Oh, that we do not do that. That that we truly root this out so that we can in turn, as we'll look now, consider the very heart and emulate the heart of this tax collector. So now, let us consider the tax collector, how awful he is. (laughs) This man is a wretch. Notice, the tax collector has nothing to bring. He cannot bring his good deeds before God. He cannot bring his honest hands. He cannot bring his purity, his sobriety, his kindness. He condemns himself. This tax collector is in a completely different place than the Pharisee he has from the parable broken both tables of the law. He makes it clear that he's failed to love God. And he's clearly failed to love his neighbor. He has broken numerous laws in that regard. Tax collectors were basically known to be swindlers. They were viewed negatively because the Romans would come in and they would hire various Jews and they said, we will hire you, you will collect money for us. And all the Jews who lived in the area viewed these tax, tax collectors essentially as traitors. They had traded nations. They traded allegiances. And now, not only were they scooping money off of their own people, but they were embezzling it for themselves. And so tax collectors became notoriously wealthy and used their wealth in a myriad of sinful ways. And so you can see why they're considered traitors. And you can see why they're considered essentially to rob people. And it makes it clear that they have nothing here to stand on. The greatest thing this man can come and say before God himself is this. I'm a sinner. No, notice he doesn't say I'm a sinner, but Lord, I want to remind you, there was a few times where I've fed the hungry, where I set up a soup kitchen and I helped those out. I just want to remind you, yes, I'm a sinner, but I did these other things. Notice also he doesn't say, Lord, I'm a sinner, But there's been some widows that I went and helped out. There's been some orphans that I went and prayed with. So I just want you to remember that, Lord. This man has nothing. He can only say, I am a sinner. That's it. And it's very clear what kind of courtroom decision should be made about this man. What he deserves. When the gavel comes down on this man, it's very clear what he deserves. If this man appeared on the nightly news, on the on the TV or on your phone, you would you would you would look and you'd go, hang him up high. Throw the book at him. Give this guy everything he deserves. How dare he treat us like this? And so, as the sentence for the first man was shocking to us, so here too, the sentence that this second man receives at first blush is counterintuitive. Look at verse 13 again with me. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The sentence, he goes free. He's forgiven. He's declared not guilty. Justified. Why? Because in the system of God's justice, Christ has done a wonderful thing for us. Paul explains this in Romans chapter three, verse 21, where he says, but the righteousness of God has been manifested. That means made clear, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they talked about this. They bear witness to this grace come from Christ. The righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That is an atoning sacrifice, a payment to God to be received. How do we receive this? Not by works, but by faith. And we see Jesus showing us through this parable who it is that receives redemption, friends. The person who liked this tax collector prays and sings what we essentially sang earlier Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we understand this parable, much of the Bible begins to make sense. Because this is not a book about right living. This is not a book merely of rules. Friends, this is a story of redemption for sinners and sufferers. In a book that tells us about how to be reconciled to God through his mercy, found nowhere except in Christ alone. And people throughout ages and time have longed to find this. They've looked and they've looked and they've said, Where can we find this grace? Where can we find this mercy? And they have found it only in the treasure of Jesus Christ, who tells them, and you and I, like this tax collector, you are forgiven. You are justified. And yet at the same time, we must know that this tax collector did not remain in sin. I think the parables, one of their strengths, one of the great things I love about the parables, they're punchy because of their brevity. They're short little snippets, and this is why the parables are so great, and yet what makes the parables great also makes the parables challenging is their brevity, because Jesus can't say it all through this simple parable, Um, and, and so if Jesus were to flesh this out in a very, very long story, well, then you would see that this man, after coming up and beating his breast and saying, "'Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner,' We would see that he goes back to his life to restore and to walk a life of repentance, to repent every day with Jesus. Friends, if if we were to say, what would this parable look like fleshed out? You don't even have to wonder. Chapter 18 of Luke is set up right before chapter 19 of Luke, in which right there at the very beginning of chapter 9, 19, that is, we find the story of Zacchaeus. Who was Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And what happens with Zacchaeus? He wants to see Jesus. He's inquiring about this Jesus. He's too sure. He stands up in the tree. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. And what do we see Zacchaeus then do? He says, oh, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Because he realizes it's all been about financial sin here. He says, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And so we see the beautiful picture of what it, this parable looks like if it's fully fleshed out in the story of Zacchaeus. And, and Jesus there, by the way, he says beautifully, he says, today salvation has come to this house as he speaks to Zacchaeus. It's beautiful. I think, church, there's a couple of ways as we land here that this may land on us. Um, first, we must watch out. Uh, we must not let ourselves become Pharisees against Pharisees. I have fought this in myself numerous times where, you know, this tax collector could have some way, the tax collector could have gone up to the temple and prayed, but his prayer could have been radically different. Much like the Pharisees, he could have said, well, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like this Pharisee because I'm a sinner and I know it. But this guy, this guy doesn't get it. He could have prayed a prayer like that. No, no, no. Let us not be like that, where we become a Pharisee of Pharisees. And further, this parable, this is a parable that must be shared. This is one of the highlights in all of Luke. It's it's a, it's a, a paradigm shifting. If I had a friend or loved one who has not yet come to the point of emulating this tax collector and they were in here with us, here's what I might say to them. I, I would say later, you may believe that you need to stack some good to help you feel that you have righted some of your past wrongs, but that's... That won't really put you in the grace of God. In fact, if you create a resume where you just merely are listing out all the ways that you're a worthy person, you end up being out of God's grace, much like this Pharisee here. I'd also want to make it clear that no matter how far you have fallen, if you cry out to God with a sincere heart looking for mercy, you will find it. And you too can leave this morning like this tax collector justified. From where you are sitting this morning, you can say with boldness in your heart, Yes, this Jesus died in my place and gave me his justification. His righteousness, even as he became my sin, which was paid for on the cross. Therefore, the mercy of Jesus has come to us here even this morning. And Christian, you who say, I like the gospel. I love the gospel. It's good. It's good news. If you say that you love the gospel, if you say that you believe the gospel, when you hear this good news, I ask you then do you ever say to yourself, yes, yes, Thomas, I know this part, I know this part, move on, move on? Yes, yes, Thomas, this is all great, just please, you know, I get it. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I ask you, friend, do you really relish the gospel? Real Christians love to hear how sinners are forgiven by Christ and how sinners receive mercy. My prayer and hope is that our church would be a church that is filled with people who on the outside look like this Pharisee, but on the inside are exactly like this tax collector. Let me say that again, I just want that to be clear that my hope and prayer is that we would want to live and honor God in the ways that we live, like this tax collector. But that none of your hope would be placed there. That it would all be placed right there on the cross. Also, church, we must be realize that we are sinners. We must not become false sinners, but we must become real sinners. And here's what I mean. Not that you dwell in or desire to remain in sin, but that you, like this tax collector, view yourself as one who does indeed sin. And therefore, you recognize this forgiveness in Christ. For sin is, for you are truly a sinner. Uh, We must become like this tax collector who really did come to a recognition that he deserved the wrath of God. I think there are some who love this parable. There are some who love the idea of grace. They love the idea of mercy. But the moment that you begin to say that they are indeed a sinner, they will recoil. They will shrug you off. They may even become enraged. You may know these people for the moment that you even begin with gentle and loving words, begin to insist that maybe they've wronged you or they've wronged someone else. They will lash out at you like a wounded animal. Because as much as they love grace, as much as they say they love mercy, how dare you suggest that they are a sinner who needs grace and mercy. Church, let us quickly admit our faults. Let us quickly admit our shortcomings. If your husband here and your wife comes to you and say, says, you have an issue. Friend, you have an issue. If wife, if your husband comes to you and says, I'm concerned, you have an issue. You have an issue. Let us quickly run to Jesus like this tax collector and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, show me how to love and live like you. And more importantly, give me your spirit to obey you because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. For God gives judgment to the proud, but God gives grace and mercy to the humble. Another way we could put this whole parable is God loves and accepts the person who humbly looks for mercy while he rejects those who exalt themselves. And if you need further proof of this, ask yourself, who was it that Jesus spent three striking years with? As Jesus was living his three years of ministry right up to the last three He swooped in the 12 apostles, didn't he? And he spent the most time with these men, loving them and teaching them. And who was one of them? A tax collector. (laughs) So we understand when Jesus told this parable, I'm sure Matthew, who wrote the very first book of our New Testament, I'm sure Matthew, his heart would have swelled realizing, this is my story right here. And if Jesus would invite sinners like Matthew and Zacchaeus, to dine with him, don't you think he would invite you? And if you have yet to put your trust in Jesus, like these men here in the scripture, I, I ask you, would you would you come talk to me or one of the elders, we would love to talk and to pray with you. Let me close here with these words uh, that we will sing here in a minute of his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we we could never afford. Our sins they are many, but His mercy is more. Would you pray with me, Father? As we close this morning, we want to pray <laughs> the prayer of the tax collector. God, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Lord, we know that that's a good place to start. It's not where we end. But it is the place we begin. Um, So we pray, Lord, that you would lead us away from sin. That you would deliver us from evil. So that this good news of grace would fall on our hearts afresh this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.